It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. What's the first thing he would do? The one thing he would do if he were president with Senator Rand Paul. Two, no charges in the gay porn video shot in a Senate hearing chamber. Three, Mark Zuckerberg is forced to apologize inside of Congress to the victims of abuse on his platform, Facebook. That with futurist and entrepreneur, along with today's biggest tech stories, Trung Fan. It is the Will Kane Show, streaming live at foxnews.com on the Fox News YouTube channel every day at 12 o'clock Eastern Time and available on demand in video, Will Kane Show on YouTube. Go hit subscribe. You'll get exclusive interviews, panels, monologues anytime you want. And if you prefer listening to this show in audio format, subscribe wherever you get your audio entertainment at Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast. Joining the ranks of Unsolved Mysteries now will be the mysterious, unavailable charges for two men who shot pornography in the Senate hearing chambers. You'll be forgiven if that escaped your memory, or maybe even escaped your immediate attention in the moment. But just a few months ago, two Senate staffers filmed themselves having sex, graphically having sex beneath the seal of the United States Senate. But that has resulted in nothing when it comes to the FBI. Joining the ranks, by the way, of who brought cocaine into the White House, who placed a pipe bomb around the Capitol on January 6th, and who leaked the Supreme Court opinion in Dobbs. Great unsolved mysteries while the FBI's historically high resources are devoted to January 6th. That's all coming up in just a moment here on The Will Cain Show, along with the fact that Cowboys defensive coordinator Dan Quinn has been hired as the head coach of the Washington Commanders, leaving the job in Dallas wide open for defensive coordinator to Bill Belichick. But first, story number one. He is the United States Senator from Kentucky. He is independent. He is interesting. And he is Senator Rand Paul here on The Will Cain Show. Senator Paul, great great to have you on the show. I have a lot of things I'm interested in talking to you about, but I am curious right off the top what you may think about the fact that this has now joined the ranks of unprosecutable crimes, this this pornography shot in your hearing chambers. It's, 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 it's stunning to see 1,100 charges when it comes to January 6th and zero charges for what I would think would amount to at a minimum indecent exposure. Yeah, disgusting and uh, just appalling that nothing's being done about it. But it's par for the course. And it's actually bigger than just the individual crime. It's the idea that this Department of Justice looks at individuals and who they are and who they are supportive of and what their philosophy is, what the shade of their ideology is to determine whether or not to prosecute. I think this is incredibly damaging to our country. Now, I know loosely, if you watch CNN, they're worried about the demise of the democracy. Well, I think I'm worried about the demise of equal justice under the law. If people are being prosecuted according to what their beliefs are 
or what ideology or what spect- where they are on the spectrum of political beliefs, because it appears as if if you are sympathetic to Biden, sympathetic to Democrats, these uh, individuals doing this uh, disgusting act in the in the Senate were, um, you know, workers for, for a Democrat senator. So it appears as if they look the other way. But what that's going to lead to ultimately is a society where the belief is that you will be persecuted, as I believe Donald Trump is being persecuted for who he is rather than what the accusations are. But I think this is very, very uh, troubling and I think will lead to strife in our country if it continues there will eventually be people that will not accept the ruling of courts, will not really accept uh, judicial decisions because they think they're basically based on your ideology, not on justice. I'm just curious on a personal level as well. Look, Senator, you know, there's a lot of people that consider the nation's capital almost sacred. Um, They place it in sort of our public gathering spaces that should never be defiled. We've heard this when it came to Bill Clinton in the White House. We heard it in regards to January 6th. You know, you don't hear it as much as you would like when it comes to cocaine in the White House or this pornography in the Senate. I personally happen to believe that there are more sacrosanct public spaces. I, I think small town USA, Main Street, Town Square is a more accurate representation of the patriotism of America. But what not? What I believe is beside the point. I'm just curious on a personal level what you think about the things that are happening within the nation's capital. Well, the thing is, is that I think without the grounding of being where I'm from, from a small town, Bowling Green, Kentucky, without actually going home and being grounded and being around the folks that I know and going to the grocery store, I think if I were up here all the time, you would lose a sense of touch with right and wrong. And I think there are people who do succumb to that. People used to refer to it as Potomac fever. They got up here and they lost sense of who they were or where they came from. So, no, I think that the things that are happening that have been normalized both in Washington and in some of our larger cities aren't normalized at home and aren't thought to be. There really is still a sense of right and wrong. You go to your church and you you meet with the people in your community and there is and they are worried about the loss of the sense of right and wrong. But uh, it still exists and it exists in small town America across America. But uh, yeah, I think if I were only here, it's easily to become jaded and to see uh, just the side of society that really uh, has no sense of virtue. Yesterday here on the Will Cain Show, I had Congressman Chip Roy. And my first question to the congressman was, hey, what issue do you think is the most important issue in America that no one is talking about? One of the things I really like about you, whether or not I agree every step of the way, is you seem to approach everything from a fairly independent streak. Whatever it is you think is important isn't necessarily what's right down the main alley of Washington, D.C.'s focus and priorities. So I kind of want to ask you that same question, like, what do you think is the most important issue no one's talking about? But you've also at times had aspirations for higher office. So if you actually had the power, you know, if you were president, what, what, what is the issue that you would address on day one? I think the biggest threat to our country is the destruction of the currency, which goes hand in hand with debt. And I think both parties have been terrible at this. And I've been fairly ecumenical with my criticism that both Republicans and Democrats are responsible for the bankrupting of our country. But it's not just the bankrupting of the country. It's the acceleration of the accumulation of debt. We accumulated about a trillion dollars worth of debt in the last three months. We have never, ever accumulated so much debt. About a third of the debt is bought by the Federal Reserve. When they do, they basically buy treasury bills, but they buy it with money that's created. So the inflation, and many partisan Republicans call it Biden inflation. Sure, Biden deserves a lot of credit 
uh, or blame for the inflation, but really $7.5 trillion worth of debt were accumulated under the Trump administration. Uh, the acquiescence to the lockdowns, the idea that we would send checks to people, all of that was creating new money and it's bid up the stock market. But my concern is not for a gradual destruction of the dollar. My concern is that we could have a cataclysmic destruction of the dollar. Uh, people talk about black swan events. These are events that if you look at the stock market in the last 100, 150 years, there's like seven days on the stock market that are like 80 to 90 percent of the loss in the stock market happened in seven different days. Uh, when you have catastrophic events, then you worry about uh, the the dissolution of society. You worry about the breakdown of society when there's a cataclysmic event. And the cataclysmic event would be the loss of the value of the dollar, uh, not over months or years, but over the period of days where all of a sudden people lose trust and say, you know, foreigners lose trust. They, they quit buying it. Private entities quit buying it because they look and say it's unsustainable. People are already saying this. But it hasn't reached that uh, pitch such that it is a cataclysmic uh, fleeing of the dollar. But I worry that that will come. And I think that there is a way to fix it in a gradual manner. But the way has to include looking at all spending. So we have people, even mm. on the Republican side, who are saying, well, we're, we're just going to leave entitlements off the table. Well, that's two thirds of spending. And then they say, well, we're, we got to increase military, and that's a, a, another half of the remaining third. So then when they, what they're left with looking at is one-sixth of government, about 14 to 16 percent of government. We're going to, by golly, we're going to be fiscally conservative on 14 percent of the government. If people are serious, they have to be honest and brave enough to talk about all of spending, and that would mean entitlement spending as well. I met with the ambassador from Sweden recently. Do you know that their age of retirement is based to a longevity index? And that if there's a downturn in the economy, they pay less in Social Security and that they don't actually allocate the money each year. It, it is what it is, you know, and they've done a phenomenal job. They're actually more conservative in Sweden than we are in the United States with regard to their retirement fund. Of course, that would be a political death kiss for you, you know, were you to ever again run for president. I mean, that's something that's being that Nikki Haley's gone back and forth on. She kind of she has talked about raising the retirement age, but, you know, I think she is. Uh, to be fair to her, talked about phasing it in over time so the current recipients wouldn't have their age raised, but the younger pay-ins would have their age raised. But everyone talks about it being an absolutely political death kiss to talk about reforming entitlement. I, I talked about it in 2009 and have made it through two terms and now into a third term. And I said we had to raise the age. I said we have to means test Social Security. So you can say it if you're honest with people. I look at people and say this. I don't want to take your Social Security. If you only have $700 a month and that's what you live on, that is tough. That is all you have. You have no pension and you're retired. Nobody wants to take that, including me. But I talked about 12 years ago, starting at age 55 and under, we would gradually raise it a month or two a year. And if we'd have done that over the last 12 years, we would actually be in a position. So you have to do it. But I'm just tired of Republicans. It used to be always the Democrats blaming Republicans for talking about reforming Social Security. Now it's Republicans attacking other Republicans on it. And frankly, the problem is bigger than partisan politics. And I want somebody to uh, emerge from the Republican Party and say, by golly, we're going we're gonna to spend what comes in. We're going to balance our budgets. We're going to be strong again. And that really, we don't become stronger just increasing the military budget. We become stronger by actually having a balanced budget so we actually have the money on hand to pay for what's necessary for our defense. 
you uh, managed to answer my follow-up question in the course of your answer, which was, I wanted you to paint for me a picture of how the the monetary crisis, the debt crisis, actually, how it plays out in reality. And the black swan event that you described, I think, is absolutely fascinating. So I'm going to instead ask you about this, playing still on your independent streak. Um, I, I think it's a fair characterization to say you seem to be cut, not just ideologically, but I think also, I think, and you and I, I think we may have met once in person, I, I'm not sure, but I think even personality-wise, from a different cloth than the rest of Washington, D.C. So I'm just kind of curious, outside the realm of politics, kind of who you are. Like, what do you do, Senator? Like, what is your hobby? What, what, what is your, what's different about you? What is your diet? What, how, how, do you work <laughs> out? What, are you, where are you independent, not just in your ideology? Yeah. I think, um, you know, people, it's funny, people talk about nature versus nurture. How do people become who they are? And I tell people in my case, it was probably both nature and nurture. I was born in, you know, probably within an independent streak from my mother and father's families from an early age. But I also was a reader from a very young age, you know, reading books, lots of books, you know, dozens and dozens of books, probably starting in the first, second and third grade. But then I've always been a reader and, and for me, reading and understanding, you know, I've read Marx, I've read uh, Mises, I've read Hayek, I've read all sides of every issue in order to try to understand what is best for, you know, economic prosperity for the country. But I guess I don't take things uh, at face value, just sort of this is what you have to do or this is what you have to do to be elected. I think that there is a, a, a an objective right and wrong. I think that uh, we can make those and should make those decisions. Um, as far as who I am as a person, I think, um, you know, other things, I'm very involved in exercise every day. I like to, you know, I'm always, I always have to do something to, uh, get rid of the extra energy from all of the mess of Washington. So escaping that, uh, probably through exercise is an important You golf, to you fish, what do you do besides I, I do, read I Marks and Mises? And, um, <laughs> contrary to what a lot of golfers are, I walk 18 holes and uh, people who there, it's amazing how many golfers we have in America have never walked 18 holes. And so I walk <laughs> in the last uh, three years, I think I've walked 1500 miles playing golf because I have a little oh, odometer wow. on my on my on my cart and I've walked 1500 yeah. miles playing golf. And maybe that means I'm playing too much golf, but I am getting some exercise out of it. I know that we have limited time together, so I want to hit two other things with you really quickly. Um, and I, I liked as well to, to establish some independence and, and some some fairness. I have spent the last two days criticizing Representative Ilan Omar for her Somalia first priorities that she revealed in a recent speech. There are a lot of people um, who've said, "Well, you know, Congressman Byron Mast wears an IDF uniform on the on the floor of the Congress," and that there's a lot of people that are accused of placing Israeli interest, for example, above American interests. I'm just curious, like. What is your position on, and I think you and I have talked about in the past, but this idea that we have allegiances, we have alliances, we have where we come from and our background, and it seems to be at a real tension uh, with this idea, well, our first prism should always be what serves America first. Yeah, I think without question, the only oath I take is to the Constitution and to our country. It isn't to another country. That doesn't mean we don't have allies, though, in sympathy for different allies, I got criticized once for going after Ilan Omar by saying she needed to go back to Somalia. And I didn't mean that go back there permanently. I meant to go back there to see the failed system. Somalia is sort of the definition of failed government, uh, sort of the same way Haiti probably is, failed government for long periods of time, tribal rivalries, but also the failure of, of collectivism, of socialism. And unfortunately, 
Um, she came here not like many immigrants. Most immigrants I meet, uh, I, you know, our town's full of immigrants, people who came here looking for prosperity and freedom and the American way. They, they value, they, they're dying to get into our country. Unfortunately, somehow she got here and uh, some immigrants have gotten here with the notion that they're going to bring sort of a new way to America, that America was a bad place to begin with and needed to be transformed. Instead of acknowledging, really, we were the beacon of light. That's why people are dying to get into our country. So I don't think she fully appreciates the American way. But by that, I mean something very specific, the ideas of freedom, voluntarism, and capitalism versus the ideas of coercion and socialism. And she needs to understand that uh, those ideas in her country have been, in, in her old country, have been an absolute failure. Yeah, and I think to to expand that, it's not it's not xenophobic. It's not it's not racist. It's not it's not betraying our allies. Even to say, okay, but how does this relationship or how does this action serve America first? Uh, the last question, then, and this is tied to it. You came out pretty strongly. Uh, Never Nikki, I think, was your was your was your uh, movement or slogan that you you co-signed on. Um, you know, what is it about Nikki Haley that so offends you as a potential president? I think it was important for people to see uh, who the people she travels with, who are the ideas that she travels with, and her response to uh, different um, world events. So her response recently, I think, has been very aggressive with the attack on the base in Jordan. Her response has been like, you know, Lindsey Graham or John Cornyn, let's bomb Iran, basically. Let's bomb Tehran. And I think people who respond in our sort of a reactionary way are missing sort of the real question. To me, the real question isn't what you do in response. Sure, well, there will be some response. But the real question is, how could we have prevented this from happening in the first place? And to my mind, there really isn't a full-throated discussion here of what are the value of having 300 soldiers in a base in northern Jordan? What are the value of having 50 soldiers at five different locations throughout um, Syria? To me, it's sort of not going with enough soldiers to win a war or fight a battle even very well, but going with just enough to be a target. And so right now, if Iran wanted to show they were mad about what's happening in Gaza and mad about us supporting Israel, we didn't have all these little tiny bases scattered everywhere. They'd have nobody to shoot at. In fact, they know it. If they go kill uh, three Jordanian soldiers, not to diminish those Jordanians, but to the world and to the view and to Iran, it's not a big deal. They want to kill Americans. And so we scatter Americans all throughout there, and there's not really a debate over that. I see Nikki Haley as someone who's for the status quo, but also part of the, the Dick Cheney wing of the party. And it's interesting, the Dick Cheney wing of the party, Nikki Haley was endorsed recently by Liz Cheney. Nikki Haley's been endorsed by Bill Kristol. These are the people who are the forever war crowd, have our troops everywhere around the world, and we are going to Americanize the world. It's an unrealistic worldview. It bankrupts our country and involves us in so many wars. And that's who I see Nikki Haley associated with. So I'll let you go after this. You've got the work to do as United States Senator. You talked about that black swan event when it comes to our currency and our economy. I'm curious, to build off what you just said, we have these attacks across our bases, American soldiers being attacked in the Middle East. You have this, I don't know, growing conflict with the Houthi rebels uh, in Yemen. How does this, in your mind, play out? Does this metastasize into a black swan event that draws us into a regional war? Or is this a death by a thousand cuts, we, constant thing we put up with um, over the length of our presence in the Middle East? I think one of the important things, and Graham Allison has written about this in the Thucydides Trap, 
is the idea that when you have an adversary or an enemy, it's important not to corner them so much that there is no exit ramp where they act in a, an irrational way. Iran has the potential of being trapped into an irrational box. So does Russia, such that a lashing out could have something, a black swan event like a nuclear attack, which then it ultimately lose. And so you have to hope that there's still rational minds enough in Iran and Russia to know that they would be destroyed in a nuclear war, but so would the world be destroyed. So I think those are important things in trying to know exactly what would lead things. But I would say that I look at the Houthis different than I look at uh, whether we should have bases and all these things. International shipping should be protected in his self-defense. And whereas I am worried about people who want to bomb Tehran, I actually would be 10 times more aggressive with the Houthi missile launches. So from the very beginning, but I would also ask Congress for permission. And actually me being one who doesn't like war, I would have voted for uh, overwhelming permission for the president to respond to the Houthis. And I would respond tenfold over to every one of those missile launches. We have the ability to strike at the missile launch site. I would strike immediately at every missile site and I'd do them 10 times over. And I would say, you will not attack our international shipping. And I think that's justified. But you also have a stronger position if you ask Congress. You're supposed to constitutionally. And if they would come, even people like me who doubt so many military endeavors would vote to protect our shipping. And I would be even much more aggressive than Biden has been at defending our shipping. The Houthis should know that they cannot and will not be allowed to attack. But that is also different than bombing Tehran. And uh, so I think the people saying bomb Tehran are not very thoughtful and not understanding what that would lead to. But I don't know that there would be a response that the Houthis are responsible, uh, are capable, nor would Iran choose to respond if we obliterated the Houthis because the Houthis started this. You know, I've been for getting out of their war for 10 years. I've been an advocate for neutrality in the war and for getting the Saudis out of Yemen. And yet um, I'm one that says you don't tolerate people uh, blowing up your cargo ships. How principled, how quaint, how refreshing to hear congressional permission for military action, a congressional declaration of war. Who could have thought of it? Just our founders. Uh, Senator Rand Paul, uh, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an enjoyable conversation. Thank you. All right. One of the things that Senator Paul said there I found uh, fascinating is the uh, the trap of forcing a, a world stage actor, be it Iran or Russia, into a box where they are forced to irrational action. The rebuttal to that what you will hear from those who want a more robust response in Eastern Europe and Ukraine or in the Middle East is that Iran is an irrational actor. That Vladimir Putin and Russia are irrational actors. To me, that prism is always this. Rationality is based upon one solid foundation. Do you hope to survive existentially as an individual or as an empire, as a country, as a nation state? Do you hope to survive? Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. This is different than the calculation of, say, an al-Qaeda who is suicidal ideology on its very face. But I would have to think that Senator Paul is on the right track, that Vladimir Putin or Russia or even the Iranian mullahs want to continue to exist, exist as individuals, exist as a nation state. And if that is the case, there is a rational foundation to our interactions. Ultimately, the threat of extinction will force them to a logical conclusion unless you force them, as he described, into a box where irrational action is the only course for their existence. Fascinating conversation there with Senator Rand Paul. Why 
is it an unsolved mystery? Why can we not find who brought cocaine to the White House? Why can we not find who leaked the Supreme Court opinion of Dobbs? Why are there no charges for two men having sex and filming themselves in a Senate hearing chamber? That's coming up next on The Will Cain Show. No charges for two men filming gay pornography in a Senate hearing chamber. It's the Will Cain Show streaming live at foxnews.com and on the Fox News YouTube channel. Also check us out on demand whenever you like. That interview with Senator Rand Paul will go up in exclusivity at Will Cain Show on YouTube. And of course, always available on podcast, Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast. I read from a statement from the Department of Justice, the United States Capitol Police. For now, we are closing the investigation into facts and circumstances surrounding a sex video that was recorded inside the Hart Senate office building on the morning of Wednesday, December 13th. After consulting with federal and local prosecutors, as well as doing a comprehensive investigation and review of possible charges, it was determined that, despite a likely violation of congressional policy, there's currently no evidence that a crime was committed. Although the hearing room was not open to the public at the time, the congressional staffer involved had access to the room. The two people of interest were not cooperative, nor were the elements of any possible crime met. The congressional staffer, who has since resigned from his job, exercised his Fifth Amendment right to remain silent and refused to talk to us. Our investigators are willing to review new evidence should any come to light. The United States Capitol Police. I don't know what evidence is necessary beyond the pornographic video of two men having sex on the desks where United States senators conduct hearings. The video pans to the seal of the United States Senate and then to the act. The point of the act wasn't that two men were overcome by romance. It was to defile, to defile the prestige, the sanctity, if you will, the, the purpose of that body, of that institution, of the United States Senate. That was the point. That was the purpose. As to what crime that amounts to, I don't know, indecent exposure. There has got to be a crime. And it's got to be worthy of a charge. But instead, this incident, this moment, joins the unsolved mysteries and unprosecuted crimes under this Department of Justice. Somehow, in one of the world's most secure locations... The United States White House, there's not enough video surveillance. There, there, there's not enough security to figure out who brought Coke into the White House. That's what we're led to believe. That somehow we can't, man, Keystone cops just can't crack down. We just can't figure it out. Inspector Clouseau, not on staff. Don't know who's snorting blow in the White House. And now... Perry Mason can't look into the thousands of pages. By the way, the federal criminal code is so large that it cannot be quantified. They literally have congressional committees presumed to be held in hearings where there's not gay sex being taking place. Presumed. They have committees designed to trying to figure out the federal criminal code. Like literally how big is the federal criminal code? What's in it? What laws have we passed? What have we criminalized? And somewhere in those... Not thousands of pages, but thousands of volumes of criminal code. There's nothing. There's nothing in there about sex in a Senate hearing chamber and filming it 
and distributing it. There's nothing in those thousands of volumes of the Federal Criminal Code. But hey, man, we can only do what we can only do. There's only so much time to devote to figuring out who's snorting blow in the White House or who's having sex in a Senate hearing chamber or who's leaking the Supreme Court opinion of uh, Dobbs that knocks down Roe v. Wade or who placed a pipe bomb around the Capitol on January 6th. These things are hard, you know, and, and there's only so much time and expertise to devote. When, when you currently have the largest investigation in the history of the FBI taking place now, as we speak, January 6th. This is the largest devotion of federal resources to any singular in- investigation. Nope, it's not the mob. It's not the mafia, the original task of the creation of the FBI. Nope, it's not Islamic extremism, terrorism post 9-11. It's January 6th that has resulted in over 1,100 criminal charges. One of my favorite television series, it remains in the top five, is uh, The Wire. There was a scene in The Wire where the Baltimore Police Department investigating drug trafficking in Baltimore sought the help of, of the federal government, sought the help of the FBI. And there was a scene where two cars parked. And then the FBI in one car and the local cops in, the, in another car talking about what resources could the FBI contribute to getting a wiretap up on, on a pretty big criminal drug dealing enterprise in Baltimore. And in, although fictional, the, the FBI agent in the, in the scene says, oh, man, we don't have anything to offer if it's not related to Islamic terrorism. We don't have the resources, we don't have the time, and we don't have the devotion. Revealing in that moment what was somewhat of a critical statement from writer and showrunner David Simon, the priorities, the singular priorities at that time of the FBI. That was his estimation. That was a critical statement on that. But what it showed, the point that I'm making, what's interesting is, it shows that attention and priorities are a zero-sum game. What you rob from Peter, you can't give to Paul. What attention and priority you give to one thing, you deprive from another. And if all of your attention in the wire is devoted to Islamic extremism, you don't have it to combating drug trafficking in America. And if you are devoting all of your resources, historic proportions of your resources, to a riot on Capitol Hill on January 6th, where undoubtedly there were some bad actors, but let's be real about the extent of the investigation and the severity of the criminals it is wrapping up and what they did or what their motivations may have been as compared to robbing Peter of the resources it could go to Paul to stop, say, child sex trafficking, kidnapping, or just spitballing off the top of my head, who's doing blow in the White House? Or whether or not there's a criminal violation of filming gay pornography in a Senate hearing chamber. There might be something rotten in the state of Denmark. There might be some misplaced priorities. There might be some things that go overlooked intentionally, while other things are ramped up to the height of attention and priority. It might just be that our Department of Justice isn't looking for justice. Mark Zuckerberg is forced to stand up and apologize to people who've found harm on Facebook. California, always the canary in the coal mine, is looking to regulate the speed of your car as we all adopt smarter computerized cars. 
and Apple now has augmented reality. All of that coming up in just a moment with an entrepreneur, a futurist, Substack writer, ex-influencer, Trung fan. That's next on The Will Cain Show. Cowboys defensive coordinator Dan Quinn has been hired as the new head coach of the Washington Commanders, leaving the position of defensive coordinator for the Dallas Cowboys vacant. I don't care what you have to do. I don't care what egos need to be set aside. I don't care what kind of tension it creates within the building. Jerry Jones, go get Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick, defensive coordinator for the Dallas Cowboys. It's the Will Cain Show, streaming live at foxnews.com and on Fox News' YouTube channel, on demand on YouTube at Will Cain Show. Hit subscribe or subscribe to our podcast at Apple or Spotify. Mark Zuckerberg, in an incredible moment yesterday, was forced by Senator Josh Hawley to stand up during a hearing and turn to the victims of harassment and abuse on Facebook and make an apology. It's a fascinating moment at the... at. Uh, even at the most surface level, when it comes to public relations, what a no-win situation for Mark Zuckerberg. Let's discuss that and many other things going on in the world of entrepreneurship and tech with Trung Fan. He is the writer at a substack called Sat Post. Go subscribe. He's also built the um, AI app, barely.ai. Uh, he is a business writer at Workweek, and you can follow him on X at Trung T Fan. And he's been here before on the Will Cain Show. What's up, Trung? Thanks for having me, Will. Uh, I'm wearing a hat today because I couldn't match your hair. So I, I saw your hair <laughs> briefly. I'm like, I got to put on a hat. I'm, I'm not going to be able to play. Is that right? Game. <laughs> You're always welcome with compliments here on the Will Cain Show. Hey, what'd you think about this moment? I mean, there's the substance of it all in the hearing, but I, you one of the first things that occurred to me, Trung, is like, as Mark Zuckerberg stood up and turned around and the cameras just surrounded him, like what a PR loss for, for Mark Zuckerberg. But had he not done it as well, if he had just declined to apologize, what a loss for Mark Zuckerberg is, you know, had he chosen that path. I don't know that there was anything he could do to win. Yeah, I, I, I think those setups in general, these congressional hearings, especially when they're framed with these yes-no questions, it, it, there really is a kind of lose-lose situation. And I think you've seen over the last couple of years, uh, when I remember distinctly when Jeff Bezos stepped down, like one of the jokes on Twitter, which it was at the time, was he doesn't want to deal with these congressional hearings anymore. So Andy Jassy is now the CEO of Amazon, for example. And then a decade ago, about a decade ago, Larry Page and and uh, and Sergey Brin left Google, Sundar Pichai is the new CEO. And a bit of that is like you, the CEO is the hot seat. And a lot of these guys are so rich already. They're like, do we want to deal with this hot seat? Where Zuckerberg, still a founder, one of the still founder CEOs of these large companies. And uh, for a while, it was Sheryl Sandberg, the former CEO, who left as CEO and now stepped down as chair uh, on the board. So Zuck is back in the hot seat, right? And it was a it was a no-win situation. He said, and, it was a, and the whole premise of the hearing was just difficult because of the, the subject matter. Uh, but they had to answer questions, and that's what it came down to. You, know, I want to believe that Mark Zuckerberg is not tolerant of the kind of stuff that he had to apologize for. You know, and he said that to the extent that he could apologize, that he could be heard. He said something like, "This is why we're working on this stuff." But I guess it's just really hard to look at not just Meta, not just Facebook, but all of these um, social media platforms, 
and say, well, you, 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 well, not you tolerate it. It's happening on your platform. At the same time, you're cracking down on so many other kinds of speech that you take as a, as a real priority. It's a little bit like what I talked about a minute ago in terms of priorities when it comes to the Department of Justice. Like, you know, if it, there are, we all know the topics that right now, I could get in trouble for on any one of those platforms. When I say in trouble, I'd be flagged, I'd be demonetized, I'd be censored. And they're pretty good at coming after you for talking about things that you know, they don't want you talking about, but they can't crack down on the stuff that they had to talk about in a hearing yesterday in Congress. I think uh, to your point, uh, there's this perception where certain speech is uh, being, like you said, cracked down on. And then the most important subject matter for any family or an individual, uh, you know, underage children being trafficked or being put in these situations. I think necessarily, I don't know if the percentage wise, like they didn't, like Zuck himself didn't talk about the percentages, right? I think Ted Cruz called him out for not knowing the exact numbers of cases that were done. Um, mm. But to Meadow's credit, they spend about four or $5 billion a year on trust and safety, which is but multiples more than the rest of the industry. And granted, I'd be curious how much of that budget is devoted to that censorship regime that we just referenced, though, versus sure. the things he had to account for yesterday in Congress. Well, the way I kind of look at it from 50,000 foot level is if you're onboarding humanity onto the internet, which is effectively what Meta has done, they have 300 billion monthly users. That's half of humanity. No, that's a third of humanity, about, and basically three quarters of internet users. You're going to get all of that, right? Like everything that's involved with humanity, which is the good, the bad, and the truly awful. And I, I just don't know if there's a true um, comparison point. Like what are we comparing them to? Like Facebook is essentially a one of one, right? They, there's no one else that are overlooking. Even the Chinese uh, government doesn't look at more than a billion point two people. India is the largest population in the world. That's 1.4 billion. They have a very... Uh, a sophisticated tech stack, but even they're about half the size of Facebook. And you, uh, who knows what's happening in the Indian uh, population, right? Uh, there's none of this to excuse Facebook or uh, Zuckerberg's seeming uh, inability to capture a lot of this really bad stuff. But I think the large 50,000 foot is like, we're talking, you've onboarded half of humanity onto this platform. I, I don't know how difficult. I mean, it's clearly a difficult challenge. I just don't know what the comparison is, if you know what I'm saying. It's like, what are we comparing it to, which is often something that needs to be done? Well, here's a, okay, this isn't a direct comparison, but this is something that is is somewhat related. Transitioning stories. Um, California is often the canary in the coal mine on, on regulation and laws, trying out new things to create their utopia that forces everybody to move out of the state. But um, one of the things they're talking about now is all the cars are getting smart smart cars, you know, um, AI increasingly integrated into cars, whatever it may be. And what it is going to open the door for is the ability for the government to regulate speed, essentially. And, and here's what's interesting about this to me, Trung. Look, I'm inherently um, libertarian conservative by nature. I don't want more laws. But you know what I have trouble with? I have trouble with formulating the argument against this development. In other words, okay, speeding is against the law. That's a democratically elected thing, right? We, we've decided. But it's kind of unenforceable outside of isolated cops out there with radar guns or um, now they have... I got, a, I got a ticket in Spain last year, which I got through the mail. I didn't know I got a ticket. Um, it must have been through video technology or something like that. 
somewhere. I got one from Italy. <laughs> Radar. They really they need to. They you got need one to from put Italy? The budgets back up, so they're hitting up all the tourists now. <laughs> that's what, seriously, seriously. I that's exactly what's happened. But um, I mean, I guess theoretically, the way they get implement this technology is, you know, whatever you're driving a Tesla or any other car now, where they can monitor your speed actively. Um, they could issue a ticket. The minute you go 60 and a 55, you could be receiving a ticket. But if I'm supposed to be obeying the law, I'm like, instinctually, I hate this, Trunk. Instinctually, I hate it. But I'm having trouble saying, why should it not be the case? I know there are times you should be able to speed, emergencies, or whatever it may be. And that'd be a ext- more extreme measure if they actually stopped you from speeding, you know, instead of issuing you a ticket. But I'm kind of having trouble accessing my libertarian argument I, I against this I see where you're, I see where you're going law. with this. So let me, let me help you cross the chasm, all right? So okay. what, in this world, we're assuming where everything's monitored on your car. What you mentioned, if they stop you speeding, well, that's the most dangerous thing in the world. So let's, let's hope they don't do that, right? If you're going to slam a car down without the driver's knowledge, right. uh, it's going 80, right. 70 or 80, that's not good. Um, but to let me let me give you a carrot for the stick you proposed because I know you're having difficulty wrapping your head around this. You're like, you know, as a libertarian, I hate the idea that they can do this. But, you know, there's a benefit then. The benefit that people have been talking about for years is if you can monitor uh, a driver's uh, basically day-to-day uh, safety record, they can get a discount on insurance, right? So that's basically the carrot to the stick you're proposing. The carrot is, hey, you're going to get a financial benefit here. We're going to reduce your premiums for not being in on the roads. I don't know if I was allowed to say that, but I don't know if this time is too late it's now. Right. But I don't know if you, uh, if that carrot is enough to balance out the stick you mentioned. So let me throw that to you. What do you think about that? Well, I think you're still manipulating behavior. I mean, that's the whole like uh, nudge philosophy. They're going to right. use all these other aspects. What I don't like about that is it's turning the private sector into an enforcement mechanism for laws. I don't like that. I don't want the insurance company being you know, in bed with the government to manipulate my behavior. I don't want the credit card companies monitoring my credit score and, and coordinating with the government on my allowances through regulation. So, you know, the carrot stick thing isn't actually that persuasive to me. It's more about... Should I monitoring me to ensure that I do not break the law? On one hand, I shouldn't be breaking the law. On the other hand, I don't want you monitoring me. No, I agree with you. That that twenty four seven, like anytime you're on the road, it, it is super dystopian. But I think you kind of brought up the reality here: is the technology is moving at such a pace, and let, let's just say, let's just grant that level five self driving does happen. And for anybody that can do napkin math, 50, I think it was 50,000 Americans a year in car crashes uh, die. And if the safety record for self-driving is 5,000, so that you're talking about a 90% drop in car fatalities, um, is that trade-off? Um, let me ask you, is that worth it to you for this basically non-stop surveillance of vehicles? So these are the trade-offs you have to make. And I, I think that world is coming. So I mean, I'm going to ask you straight up, like, what, what would you say to that? Well, I would say that if that is a compelling enough stat, if that stat bears out and it's compelling enough, it should be incentive enough for the individual drivers to make those choices to reduce their likelihood of a fatality. But I'm not sure, not only am I not sure, I am sure, I don't want regulated force taking away of independence. If I want to drive myself and I don't want to self-drive, I want the ability to do that. And... Um, and you leave it to the individual. And I understand that there's two sides of a car wreck, and you could compromise someone else's ability as well. Um, but but I, I'd leave it up to the market. 
Honestly, that's what I would do. I'd leave that up to the market for people. And and trust if that your technology is good enough, people will make the safer decision most of the time. Right. So there is a world where you, uh, as long as it's the market deciding that world, the market could walk us into a world of more surveillance though, right? That's that's the situation. But you're more comfortable with that yeah. happening than a top-down mandate. Understood. And and the truth is, Trung, if 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 these two things go in tension, if if there is a car that reduces the likelihood of wrecks, to your point, then the necessity for speed limit laws goes away. So in other words, if my self-driving car can drive incredibly fast and safe at the same time, if it can do a hundred and be safe, well now we're talking about solving of something without regulation. Yeah, that's right. There you go then. So technology actually can help the case you're making. So I think you just squared your own circle. <laughs> let's talk about um let's talk about this augmented reality with Apple. I'm not a first adopter, Trung. I think you might be. I mean, you certainly you you think about the future, you think about technology, um, and you think about business. And like I already have one friend who's a big first adopter and he's like, This is gonna be great. You know, you wear this thing and now I don't have to look at my phone screen and it all kind of is there in front of my eyes and it's embedded within my reality of what I see. Um, on the other hand, by the way, Tim Cook's not apparently not using them. So I don't know if, what kind of endorsement that is of augmented reality. Well, so uh, just actually, it came out this morning because I, I actually tweeted yesterday. It's been seven months since they announced the Vision Pro and we haven't seen Tim Cook wear the Vision Pro headset. This morning, they, they basically saved it for, as a PR standpoint. He did a cover story for Vanity Fair. He's on the cover of Vanity Fair with the Vision Pro uh, goggles on. So first time. <laughs> yeah, so they they played it well. Like, listen, Apple is the marketing machine. They're like, let's just save the lot. People are asking, people are wondering. Because I remember in June last year, everybody noticed immediately, Tim Cook's not wearing these things, right? Because if you remember when Sergey Brin, uh, ten, a decade ago, Google's co-founder was wearing the uh, Google Glass in the New York subway, people were calling him a glass hole. So Tim Cook, like, I'm not going to be called the glass hole. Like, I'm not letting that happen. I'm not going to let the meme cycle get me. So they basically stretched it out seven months. Everybody in tech was wondering, when is Tim Cook going to put this on? Because if you remember Steve Jobs, what was Steve Jobs famous for in his keynotes? This dude is pulling things out of the fifth pocket in his jeans. He's holding up the eye. Like, these iconic photos, right? He's setting up these yeah, but, situations. Yeah, but... but. But, Trung, isn't it true that Steve Jobs didn't want his kids to have an iPhone? Isn't it true like Mark Zuckerberg doesn't want his kids on social media? Yeah. And then that's what, that's what makes it noteworthy right? that Tim <laughs> Cook doesn't put on augmented reality. It's like, why is this all good for us but not for you and your family? No, I think, I think, I think Tim Cook didn't put it on because he's worried that if he looked like it, he just wouldn't look good in it. I'm being fully honest. Like, I think he's worried <laughs> about the meme of like the bad product. But uh, to your larger point, let me, let me actually address that, right? Of technologists not letting their yeah. kids have technology. Um so yeah. I'll address what I'm saying. It's true. There are a lot of technologists that don't do that. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg is one of them. Uh, Steve Jobs says he didn't want his child using, like you said, the iPad until a certain age. Uh, I feel the same way. Like I let my kid use uh, an iPad to watch a YouTube. I don't let him play games. And I keep him to like 30 minutes or less a day. And, well, my funny thing about that is when I wasn't a parent, I would go into restaurants and be the judges person ever. Like I'd see a parent giving their crying kid a phone and be like, I I'd never do that. And as soon as you have a kid, you're just trying to have a nice meal. And the kid's crying. He's like, yo, just take this phone. Let me have my meal, dude. And uh, so I get, yeah. I get the tension, right? So if you're being honest, no one's a perfect parent around that. Uh, but the addictive qualities is the problem. It's, it's everything you meant. That's the real problem. And it goes back to the, the congressional hearing you brought with uh, social, which we didn't even touch on. There should be an age limit 
on social media. Uh, children should not be on social media. It's like the, the cigarette comparison that I think either Cruz or Holly was making, it's 100% true. Mm. I mean, there's, there's not the only ones making it. Lots of people from all sides of the spectrum are making the cigarette comparison. But I think in 50 years, we're going to look back and be like, wow, I can't believe we just let people on social media. You know, their prefrontal cortexes aren't even developed until 25. That's the executive decision-making aspect of your, uh, of your brain. And you're 15 years old and you're being compared to other people you're seeing what you know people are presenting the best form of their life everything's comparison uh you're getting into negative fights online where the feedback loop is so much quicker than an argument you'd have pre-internet but you'd have an argument pre-internet somebody would say something nasty to you you'd have all day to stew about it but then you wouldn't see the person again for another week and then you don't care anymore but now on social you get sucked into these these uh, uh these beefs these online fights that are just taking over your mind and ruining your psychology right so i think uh the large point is yes social media to answer to just your point about the technology but the other aspect yeah. of it that you kind of mentioned uh if i can talk about the business side would that be cool yeah yeah so i think the business aspect if you want to look at it for fifty thousand foot business aspect for apple you have to think about what apple is apple is the either the most or second most valuable company in the world, depending on the day, them and Microsoft are swapping. They're about $3 trillion companies. From their perspective, uh, the iPhone is the greatest consumer product ever. They've sold 2 billion of them. It's made uh, over two, $2 trillion. And now they're like, we need to find this next cycle, right? So from their perspective, they just need to find something that basically moves the needle for them. So like, if you've ever noticed how the Apple podcast player has sucked for 15 years, it's because even if they made the best podcast player in the world, it would not move the revenue needle. They just don't care. And uh, But you know, ARVR could help them. You know, it's interesting. Companies go through, and you know this, companies go through essentially two main phases. That's the startup entrepreneurial phase and then the managerial phase. And I don't know anything about Tim Cook that well, but it's clear like Steve Jobs was the entrepreneurial phase. And it's, by the way, two big different personality types. Um, the entrepreneurial startup guy is not the best guy to manage you going forward often. Um, but, you know, um, I'm reading Walter Isaacson's biography of Elon Musk. And um, it I don't know that Isaacson points this out, but people have pointed out, as great of an entrepreneur as he was, Steve Jobs, he kind of did one thing. I mean, a couple of products, one main product, but he did one thing. And most entrepreneurs really kind of do one thing. There's this story right now about, you know, an attempt to cap the pay on Elon Musk. And I don't even know the legal grounding for that. But one thing we can say about Elon Musk, and I had a friend the other day say, no, he's the greatest entrepreneur of all time, because he's literally... He's done it at least, what, two to four times. I mean, depending on whatever we we contribute to PayPal, to whatever we contribute to X, but undoubtedly SpaceX and Tesla, you know, this is, and then not exactly like little tweak type products, vastly different products that he has pioneered. And now we're trying to sit out here and say, no, he's not worth whatever the pay package is. It is too much, according to the powers that be. No, I agree with you. And I think the line from the Walter Isaacson book is uh, Walter talked to Larry Elson, the CEO and founder of Oracle. Uh, so Larry Elson is very good friends with Steve Jobs. So if you and he's very good friends with Elon Musk. So if you wanted somebody to be able to compare those two entrepreneurs, Larry Elson said for him, the biggest difference with Elon and Steve was uh, like to your point, Steve Jobs is more of the designer, uh, thinker, creative, creative. Elon's on the factory floors. 
Uh, Elon is on the Tesla factory floor, making sure they can get Model Three ramped up, right? And that, that it's it's yeah. Elon's understanding. That's what that's a Tim Cook angle. You brought up the Tim Cook is more the manager. Well, Tim Cook is known for being the supply chain master. So Elon's like basically almost a combination of this creative side and also the the nuts and bolts side, which is what Steve Jobs and Tim Cook were. Um, but specifically about talking about the pay package, I'll tell you the crazy thing about that. The guy that brought the case owned nine shares of Tesla. And uh, but so the guy bringing the case against Elon owned nine shares. And at the time in 2018, when this was brought to the Tesla shareholders, 80% of them voted yes. And the, the legal grounds for it uh, that the judge made was essentially that the shareholders did not know. And I think this is a little bit unfair to the shareholders because they probably didn't know, but they didn't, the judge is saying they didn't know that Elon was so close with the board. I mean, his brother was a board member to, for them not to know that right. seems a little bit absurd. Right. And, uh, that's how they're doing it. The call back. I, I think it's crazy because if you read any of the articles in 2018, so Andrew Ross Sorkin, uh, New York times, uh, business, uh, one of the leading business, uh, uh, voices from New York times. He, in 2018, I think he wrote an article that literally said this pay package and the compensation plan it's so insane as in these milestones are sound so unachievable that this is the most right. ridiculous pay package that ever like people were literally laughing and they thought it was a pr stunt uh to make it uh, and elon did right i think at the time that tesla was a 70 billion dollar company and essentially said if he can get it to 650 billion dollars over by 2030 it unlocks all these tranches of the pay package 90 percent of the business media thought it was impossible. They, people were laughing. So for right. a person with nine shares to be able to claw back what 80% of the shareholders agreed with that time, I mean, by Delaware law, it's possible, but I think it's absurd. Yeah, you, you said it well, but no one thought he would be able to do what he would do, so they thought that the pay package was uh, an impossible reach, a shoot for the stars, and they did it. And by the way, that's the way you should reward an entrepreneur. Um, shoot for the stars, create the impossible, achieve the impossible, and reap the reward. And by the way, when I was talking about how many different things he's done, I forgot about his first company, which I can't remember the name of it, that he sold for... You oh, know, Zip2. It, it's Zip2. And then, by the way, the solar He's also involved in solar stuff. So, I mean, he's all over the map on different businesses that he's created. Last thing with Trung Fan. Something I found fascinating. It was an article up on foxnews.com uh, a few days ago talking about the future of the urban environments, the future of big cities, and talking about by 2100, they would lose 20% of their population. Um, and that they would move, largely it suggests, to the suburbs. During COVID, we saw a lot of move to rural areas. Um, and... And the argument now is people have made this like suburbs, what were bright and shiny and new, maybe in the 90s and 2000s, have turned into their second, third generation turnover for the home. And they're getting rougher. They're getting rougher neighborhoods. Right. And that's how that's how it is, for example, in France, in Paris, like the suburbs are the slums and people live with wealth in Paris. It's weird to figure out what's going to happen in America, like do the suburbs like Paris turn into the slums? But there's also not this big movement for people to move necessarily into an urban environment. So I'm curious what you think, like how do we live here over the next several generations? I like that you toss me a nice softball, easy, low-hanging fruit question <laughs> uh, at the end there. <laughs> um, well, 
the best I could draw is my personal anecdotes. And I, I am hearing a lot more of my friends uh, that have made a permanent move out. And uh, particularly around my age group where you first having those first or second child. Uh, I think this is, I don't, I don't think there is one answer. To I suburbs? An answer. Or suburbs, rural? Suburbs, yes, or exurbs. Like they want a bigger house, yeah. right? And to your point, the some of these properties are a bit older. I mean, remember the growth of the suburbs in America, right? It was it was tied to uh, post-war uh, economic boom with cars. That was basically the growth of the suburbs, tied directly to uh, the the expansion of car ownership. So, uh, I think that I mean there there's a bit of an arbitrage play for people that want bigger homes, right? Like you said, there's a bit more rundown outside, but na- I mean nature, uh, it kind of ties back actually to the Vision Pro in a sense. Is uh, we're gone so techie that. Um, People just want nature. They want more space, and uh, I, I don't know if it's a permanent thing, but I, I, I definitely see. Here, let me answer with this. I think there'll be certain cities that will have the Paris model, and you, we can guess what they are. It's the top cities in America, right? People will want to do the Paris thing in New Yorks, in the Bostons, and LAs of the in, of America, but maybe the second or third tier uh, cities will actually not get that treatment, and people would rather live on the suburbs of a Cleveland, for example. Or, or or of a um, what would be a good second or third tier city in your eyes where people? Well, you know what I think. Uh, I would drop down another tier. I think the f- the most popular cities of American future are, and I've often said I think this is the perfect size city. Are the two hundred to three hundred thousand person city? So okay. it's Waco, Texas, Lubbock, Texas, Knoxville, Tennessee, where nothing's a big commute. You got everything you need in that kind of city, including most of the time at least a regional airport. Um, but you don't have the blight that you often have in in huge urban environments. I, I think that's the sweet spot. Now, the, the trick is, as people find sweet spots, then the, it gets to be too big, you know. So it's it too sweet. I, I think that <laughs> I think it's too sweet. So I think that two hundred to three hundred thousand person city is is sort of the future. Um, you know, not utopia, but but bright light for for city living. No, I like that. That's a great answer. And so the bifurcation then, the the top will never go away, right? In New York, people are always, if you're young, 20, ambitious, you're always going to want to go to New York. Uh, but to your as you get older, as you realize you're never going to own a home in New York, you're going to want to move to Knoxville, Tennessee, to your point. Yeah. All right, Trung Fan, Sat Post. Subscribe to his Substack. Check him out on X. Trung T Fan. He's also got his AI app, Barely, B-E-A-R-L-Y dot AI. Trung, always great to talk to you, man. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you, guys. All right, bud. We'll see you. All right, so it's been roughly one hour since this show began, and I haven't checked yet. Has Jerry Jones yet hired Bill Belichick as defensive coordinator of the Cowboys? No breaking news yet, but I expect it momentarily. Um, that's not reporting. That is extreme wishful thinking. How does this man not have a head coaching job in the NFL? Maybe he'll be defensive coordinator of the Dallas Cowboys. That's going to do it for me right here on The Will Kane Show. Uh, we'll see you again tomorrow. A sports-exclusive episode of The Will Kane Show with former Florida State and NFL quarterback Danny Cannell. I'll see you next time. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcast and Amazon Prime members. You can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. 
Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.